The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Hello and welcome to Our Wild World. Not so long ago, between 250,000 and 500,000 wolves roamed nearly all of the United States. Over a 100 years ago, around the world, we began waging a war against the wolf. The U.S. government implemented policies of wolf control. Theodore Roosevelt, widely known for his environmental activism, declared the wolf as a beast of waste and destruction. Calling for its eradication, by 1960, the once populous gray wolf was essentially extinct throughout its former range, and the last 300 wolves in the lower 48 states roamed the deep woods of Upper Michigan and Minnesota. But, as we all know, the story doesn't stop there. What we do know is this is not a biological disease. This is not something that is strictly about wolf biology. This conflict is a social disease. So today it is a privilege to have the author of Wolfer and the one man who can give us a very clear picture about the wolf debate. I'd like to welcome Carter Niemeyer. Good morning. Good morning and how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Carter, it's such a pleasure to have you here. I've read your book, Wolfer. I'm not sure if uh, the, you know the audience has fully gotten there, but if anyone is interested on what's going on in the wolf debate from the beginning to the end, uh, Wolfer is a must-read. It's not an easy read. It's not um, a sentimental read, but it is a very necessary read. And I, for one, thank you very much for putting it out there. So perhaps you could uh, give us a little background of who you are and how you came to be up to this point, and then we'll get into your, your book a little bit. Well, my history starts out in Iowa. That's where I grew up and went to college there at Iowa State University and then uh, got uh, bachelor's and master's degrees in wildlife management, wildlife biology back there. And then uh, followed the road of opportunity out west. I got a job in Montana, ended up working for uh, wildlife services as a supervisor uh, we were in charge of uh, various predator control activities. Mostly my job was in the western half of Montana. And uh, by about 19, 
mid-1980s, uh, wolves started showing up in the state of Montana, up in the northwest corner. And uh, my responsibilities uh, then uh, included wolves. So by 1990, when uh, several wolf packs were beginning to show up in Montana, they created a wolf specialist position uh, as kind of a new one-of-a-kind in the modern uh, era. And the wolf specialist was supposed to be in charge of investigating livestock damage and doing wolf control, uh, both with uh, foothold traps and helicopter capture. Um, I fulfilled that role from 1990 to 2000. Uh, that included uh, working in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And then uh, by 2000, uh, they needed a wolf recovery coordinator for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Boise, Idaho. And so I applied and uh, got that position. So uh, my involvement with wolves evolved rather quickly. So in that statement that you gave us there, um, that was sort of the cliff notes of uh, your career as it moved. But behind there is a whole lot that was happening. So um, you mentioned wildlife services, animal problem control, wildlife control, livestock interests. Uh, and these are some really um, trigger point issues today. So can you explain to us a little bit? Um, it seems that the livestock control, as we talked about before, is more of a social issue versus a wildlife management issue. So how did it come about that uh, wildlife control became about being vested interests for livestock versus, let's call it wildlife conservation and wildlife preservation and, and species preservation. The, this perhaps happened before uh, the Endangered Species Act. Fill us in a little bit on more of that, um, the thickness and the layers that was going on in there. Well, my role was rather unique working for Wildlife Services. Uh, they're, they're a predator control branch of government. Uh, they were under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service when I first started working in Montana, uh, then were eventually transferred to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Yeah, that so made a huge difference, didn't it, in terms of policy and politics? Well, they're, they're a kind of a separate agency uh, um, doing the, the predator control aspect of uh, the wildlife relationship, you might say, where, where predators uh, kill livestock. And so then you have the whole other side of, of government. Uh, if you want to talk about the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, recovery programs and all the, the other uh, different sections of the Fish and Wildlife Service that are involved. So um, we had to kind of work in harmony, and that was the uniqueness of my role, was uh, being a predator control specialist, yet uh, working around sensitive species uh, like the wolf, for an example, being uh, you know both uh, threatened in Minnesota and uh, considered endangered in the western United States. So at that time, this was back, in, back when? In the 1960s or... Well, my my uh, involvement <clears throat> began in the uh, about mid nineteen seventies when wolves started coming out of Canada, naturally immigrating uh, into Montana. And by the nineteen eighties, they just actually established some packs in Northwest Montana. Some of those first packs did get into trouble with livestock, 
which brought wildlife services into the picture because uh, that was their responsibility. And on the other hand, the Fish and Wildlife Service's uh, ecological branch were in charge of, uh, you know, the management authority over wolves. So that, that's a huge dichotomy. That's that's a conflict when you have one side that is working to um, eradicate what is considered a pest, and the other side that is under pressure by the same government and public pressure to protect the species. So um, I do want to bring up one little point that you'd made very clear to me, and, and then we're going to get a bit into the reintroduction uh, project and how that happened and, and your part in that, um, that the, the claim that the reintrodu- reintroduction of the, wolf, the Canada gray wolf, I believe it, it is, into the, we're going to call it the Yellow, Yellowstone ecosystem, um, is illegal and a different species. And you were mentioning about a lot of the informa- misinformation around that. So let's head into how it switched from a, re- a mindset, a social mindset of eradicating wolves as pests to an understanding that now this is an endangered species. It used to be the planet's, North America's most widespread large land mammal um, after us and our livestock and have always been our most direct competitors for meat. So let's get a little into the more, um, without getting emotionally knee-jerk system or responses, a little bit of the meat between going from eradicating them to understanding uh, we needed to reintroduce them, and then how that related to actual science of understanding why reintroduction is important. Well, the wolves were protected under the Endangered Species Act uh, about 1973-74. And so uh, it was the responsibility of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to uh, look at, uh, you know, protecting that population, maintaining it, and actually uh, recovering it. So the process uh, was discussed clear back in the 1970s, and by 1994, uh, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, wrote an environmental impact statement and, you know, took all the necessary steps to uh, do this wolf reintroduction correctly. Uh, There was 160,000 public comments. Um, It it had a lot of publicity, a lot of notoriety. But, uh, you know, the process was said to be illegal by critics, but uh, the process was legal. Uh, It went through some court challenges and went forward. Um, the wolves, you know, there's criticism, you know, that this is a, a bigger, meaner, more vicious uh, wolf. Uh, actually, for all practical purposes, these wolves are the same wolf that lived here. And actually, they're the only source of wolves that would come back into the northern Rockies was in Canada, where the uh, residual populations lived. So this is basically the same species of wolf. Uh, they appear the same. They weigh the same. Um they're, for all practical purposes, really no different. So what, what we're looking at here is the, the top layer of the biological aspects of reintroducing a wolf uh, or wolves and nitpicking in terms of, I'm going to just use some, some interesting words here that I might not normally use. So it sounds like a lot of nitpicking going on. It's not the same species. It's bigger. But underneath all of that is this fear. Wouldn't you say this fear of our relationship with the wolf? Why are we fighting so hard, um, governmentally and policy-wise, to keep wolves gone? 
Well, you're, you're absolutely correct. Fear is the fundamental issue. And along with that fear, uh, you know, some people actually fear the wolf as, as a dangerous animal, which, you know, we can talk about that separately. But um, there's also a fear of, of uh, federal government uh, coming in, telling the states what to do. You know, there's fear that uh, the wolf reintroduction was to, uh, you know, abolish or, or uh, cease big game hunting in the United States. Uh, there, were, there were all these other fears, you know, they're going to take away our guns, uh, on and on. And uh, really, there was none of this uh, really involved in the planning of bringing wolves back. It was just to uh, bring back the apex predator that once lived here. Well, that sounds like the crux of the problem. You know, competition, apex predator, competition for us, and um, how... all the things you just mentioned from reintroducing an animal to all these uh, possibilities of conflicts, creating conflicts. Do you think uh, we went about just creating these conflicts out of hand due to our poor history with wolves? And, and, and once again, that fear that tell us a little, tell us a little about wolves. You're probably one of the, one of the only men I'll ever get a chance to talk to on a Monday morning that knows just about everything there is to know about wolf biology, ecology, habitat, and even their personalities. Um, tell us, tell us about them. Well, wolves are the precursor of our uh, domestic dog. You know, they're the biggest dog on earth. Um, they're a wild canine. Uh, we talk about apex predators. You know, they. Uh, they're kind of the big dog on the block, and uh, other species have to re- respond and react to having uh, wolves in the environment. They prey on big game species like deer and elk, caribou, moose, so forth, um, make those herds healthy. And, and uh, besides that, you know, they're just uh, another animal out there that, uh, you know, fills in the niche in the environment and... Uh, Sometimes, you know, talking about the fear of competition, you know, they like to do what hunters do and, and humans and uh, kill these prey species and often compete with us. And but, they, they do it for a need where we do it for, I think, an entirely different reason. Um, we've got a few minutes until the break. So uh, you had brought up some interesting points there, uh, the predator-prey relationship. Uh, before we started eradicating the wolves, we had healthy deer populations and through a lot of the past hundred years of study in science through people like Robert Bestia, William Ripple, you, um, fish and wildlife, ecologists, biologists, we've learned what happens when we remove an apex predator from its, its landscape. So what were the first noticeable effects in, in your uh, experience when wolves were taken away? And we could narrow it down to, let's say, Yellowstone National Park or, or your, your part in this. Well, I, I didn't really work so much in Yellowstone. I did help the Park Service uh, collaring wolves there. But, you know, Yellowstone National Park is kind of the show, show, uh, showcase location to really look at, at wolves and how they relate to the, you know, the entire ecology Outside the park, you know, we have conflicts, we have livestock damage issues, we have, uh, you know, the hunting and trapping, and we just have human presence. Where in Yellowstone, uh, we were able to watch the wolves 
um, wolf population grow and, and measure the relationships with the, you know, wild ungulate herds in that park. And then uh, there has been ecological studies, you know, looking at the the uh, ripple effect, the uh, trophic cascade effect of wolves on elk and the effects of elk on vegetation and, uh, you know, the subsequent other biodiversity that responds to uh, uh the diminishing of elk herds, for instance. So there, there, there seems to be plenty of elk out there. So it becomes once again this human issue, this human conflict. That um, I don't think it's really possible that wolves can kill all the elk out there and diminish um, healthy elk for trophy hunting for the hunt, hunting industry. So why is it still that the hunting industry is so anti-wolf? We've got a couple of minutes here, and then we can take a break, and we'll come back into this really emotionally charged issue. Well, ever since I moved out west, you know, and we start talking about wolves coming back, uh, I've had a lot of hunters just tell me, you know, hey, if if wolf, you know, if elk need to be killed, I'll kill them. We don't need wolves eating the elk. I'll shoot it myself. And so, uh, just around Yellowstone, when I first moved to Montana. They had late elk hunting seasons around the per- perimeter of the park, trying to reduce the elk population using hunters. So, and uh, that went on for years and years. And about the time the wolf reintroduction occurred, you know that herd did begin to diminish for a whole number of reasons. Um, you know, drought and and winters, uh, so forth. But. Um, you know, prey control predators. Predators don't control prey. So right. there's a big concern that wolves are just going to eat all their prey into oblivion, which really isn't true. Uh, the more abundant prey species are, the more abundant wolves are. So we've got about a minute left. So we're talking with Carter Niemeyer, uh, author of Wolfer. We'll get into that a little bit more. He was, within that book, was one of the first whistleblowers on wildlife services. So, so far we've covered a lot of the biological and history reasons for the wolf reintroduction. Um, But as we come back from the break, we're going to get a little bit more into the emotional issues surrounding this conflict and why there is such a thing as a wolf debate. So stick with us. If you'd like to call in and ask Carter or myself a question, call in to 1-866-472-5788, or you can send me an email to wildize at wildeyes.org, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. 
Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back with our special guest, Carter Niemeyer, author of the outstanding, somewhat shocking, but a must-read book, Wolfer. And uh, he's with us today. And so far, we've covered a lot of the um, science background, the reasons for the Wolfery introduction, um, a little bit of the reasons why we're, uh, we got rid of them in the early 1900s, but... Uh, Really, what what is between all the lines of this and what is so heated today is the emotional aspect of wolves, having them live with us. Carter, you probably have been more involved with all sides of this particular coin or this little gem or however you want to call it. Tell us about some of this. I would love to hear this coming from you because you've related with these with the wolf lovers and the wolf. Uh, let's haters. Let's just go ahead and call it wolf haters. Talk to us. Yeah, the emotional part of, of wolf recovery, I think, is, is been my uh, my cup of tea because uh, you know early on there was a concern that you know wolves were eradicated and uh, their rightful place was was back where they used to be. Uh, of course, when wolves started coming back, then uh, there were some livestock killed, which uh, I experienced the emotions of livestock owners um, worried and concerned about their livestock being killed. And then uh, as we started doing wolf control, of course, uh, the public uh, became uh, outraged that uh, we would be killing the very wolves that we considered endangered and were trying to protect. So. Um, I've gone through many layers of uh, the emotional issues, and uh, they continue today. So, tell us about some of those. Can you? Would you be willing to relate some some experiences without getting into specific stories? I mean, these issues have got to be big. Having worked in Africa, I understand when an elephant destroys somebody's entire livelihood, uh, or a lion takes a cow, but. Previously in our history, there weren't so many of us. Now there's so many more of us using so much more of the land and an economy based on livestock. Where is the room and how do you think it will come about that we can create not only the societal will but and, and the mental room and the physical room to live with carnivores, especially apex predators? 
Well, we're a very divided country on that question because, uh, of course, uh, when the wolves were pretty much uh, extirpated from the United States by the 1930s, uh, life went on. And, of course, we got a lot more people. And uh, all of the land is being utilized for something, you know, whether it's a subdivision, a city, a town, and uh, a huge amount of our country is agriculture. Uh, so when you remove a predator, uh, apex predator like the wolf, and then suddenly talk about bringing him back, um, you're asking the world to make room for an animal that was once here and gone. And, and it's tough, especially if you're a livestock producer who has been raising livestock and uh, haven't had to worry about a big dog in your backyard before, and suddenly you have to deal with that. That sort of goes back to the same concept of ecology of fear. Um, healthy uh, prey herds, ungulates, uh, through the studies we've learned that term ecology of fear to um, stay alive and survive. So here in North America, we got rid of pretty much all of our apex predators, the big, scary, hairy ones that would do us damage. So to bring it back would um, probably cause a lot of um, raised hackles and conflict over finances and economics. So let's talk about the economics for a minute. So we spent a lot of money eradicating wolves, and then we spent, and I say we, the government, taxpayers, we spent a lot of money uh, reintroducing them. And yet we still have this conflict and are spending money, both governmentally and private in terms of huntings and licenses, killing and keeping wolves alive. How are we going to deal with this um, dichotomy? Well, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service from the onset um, made a commitment to the public that um, livestock damage, for instance, wouldn't be tolerated. So uh, along with uh, wolf reintroduction and recovery, there was a commitment to the public to not allow um, certain wolf packs uh, to cause this uh, severe economic damage. So it shouldn't be any surprise to anyone that uh, those were part of the uh, the rules of engagement that uh, if we're successful in wolf recovery, then we're going to have to deal with some of the problems along the way. Uh, and and that's, the again, uh, the portion of recovery that I was involved in a lot. So uh, it was real important to me to make sure that uh, we were dealing with real problems versus uh, imagined problems or perceived problems. Uh, which gets you into a whole other can of worms. You know, did the wolves do it or didn't they do it? Whose fault is it that they they killed the livestock? And uh, how do we remedy that problem? So it becomes a pretty fine line between animal control and and wildlife mismanagement, which uh, brings us right to wildlife services. You were a special agent for the wildlife services. You were a government trapper. You hunted and killed wolves for the government. Um, And then somewhere along the line, and if you read Wolfer, you'll find the entire story here, which is an amazing story. Somewhere along the line, your mind shift switched. How did that happen? What happened, Carter? Well, I tried to do my uh, the job honestly, fairly, and non-prejudicially. I mean, that's just the way I was raised. So um, when I got involved in the, in the livestock damage portion of recovery, 
uh, it was really important to me to get it right because so often uh, it, it wasn't what it appeared to be. So it became really fundamental to me to do uh, animal necropsies on the livestock and determine if wolves were really the, really the problem versus a uh, mountain lion, a black bear. And, and very often it was just, uh, you know, uh, an animal had died and was being scavenged. So you said, I'm sorry, you said a really important thing right there. You said it wasn't often what it appeared to be. So what was it supposed to appear to be versus where I think you were just heading what it actually was or is? Well, along with wolf recovery, there was a lot of publicity about wolves. Uh, The more publicity they got in the newspaper, uh, the more they became the, uh, the kind of the major issue. And even though we had very few wolves, uh, we seemed to be developing an awful lot of wolf problems. And uh, my early experience was that uh, many of these problems were imagined rather than real. So uh, doing these necropsies and and looking at the cause of death, uh, I often got crosswise with people who said that I was being dishonest, that I was a wolf lover, that I uh, was really trying to cover up what wolves did because... uh, I wanted to see wolves, you know, back in the landscape and, and so, so on and so forth. And so this really kind of got to me, and I think that's where a lot of uh, my attitude changed was um, I'm going to stick to the, the truth of the matter and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, and I, I just got a lot of criticism, uh, and I'm not picking on livestock producers necessarily. Uh, uh, when we had the legitimate losses, um, the public who supported wolves or advocated for them, uh, they often jumped on my case and said, you're a liar, you're sticking up for the livestock folks. So this is what kind of made me determined that uh, this wasn't a popularity contest and I'm not going to win either way. So I'm just going to call it like it is. And it it did get me kind of crossways with uh, a whole lot of the public, but uh, that's the nature of that game. But it seems to also have gotten you crossways with your, let's so-called, employer, the U.S. government, the United States Department of Agriculture. Um, So that comes down to, and the term is used in your book, so I hope you don't mind if I use it here, whistleblowing on wildlife services. There is a lot going on today, and um, I've been advocating for our listeners and the public to uh, be aware of what our wildlife services uh, agency has turned into. And... um, so you, you became crosswise with that agency also. What is it, um, this might be an unfair question to ask, but what is it about the agency that went to as strong a length to um, give you such a hard time, to turn you into a troublemaker? Why did that hit such a raw nerve with the wildlife services? Well, there was a phrase often used when I worked in Montana that uh, I heard other wildlife ser- services uh, supervisors comment to that, uh, well, we're kind of the hired gun of the livestock industry. And uh, that was just kind of a slang term. And in many respects, we were. Uh, the job was to remove pre- predators that killed livestock. Um it's a tough position to put wildlife services in uh, when wolves came back because the livestock industry pretty much looked at us as the hired guns. And so when I went out and started looking at uh, damage, 
that was reported and coming back reporting, well, it wasn't wolves again. Uh, the, the, the cow just tipped over. It, it put my supervisors on the hot seat because ranchers were saying, what's this guy doing out here? I mean, he, 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 we hire you guys, you know, to protect us, and he's telling us there's not a problem. Um, so there was folks in my agency started leaning pretty hard on me that uh, I wasn't given the right answers. And it, it irritated me. And, and then, of course, we had politicians, we had governors and, and Congress folks. Uh, they started kind of leaning on my bosses saying, well, hey, you know, this Niemeyer, uh, he's kind of a problem out there. So I think this is where I just kind of got a bow in my neck and decided uh, I'm going to call it the way it is. And if you don't like it, I guess you can fire me. But uh, um, so there, there were hard feelings and uh, that's kind of uh, the relationship I had with my agency once that uh, we got in, immersed in this wolf situation. And it seems since then, Wildlife Services has been in the news a lot, on the headlines a lot. There is a petition to defund Wildlife Services. Coming up in a few weeks, um, I have a, a colleague of yours who's going to be on our show, Brooks Fay. Um, who is working specifically on highlighting to the public what is going on with wildlife services. So um, if, if we could get just a little bit into some of the metho- methods of government killing of wolves and whether your personal feeling is about the ethics and the morals of this. Um, in terms of what you said earlier, the wolf is another predator. We need it in our, in our ecosystem. So many studies, hundreds of 50 years at least of science has shown us why the wolf is important to our ecosystem. You speak about it in your book. Your biological history speaks to it. So what is it that is preventing us from um, getting getting our government and policy and politics to come a little closer on the same pathway as the public who wants to see wolves? This... We seem to be at a real sticking point here. How do you think we're going to get beyond this? Well, I just think uh, government has to become a little more sensitive to society. You know, we're uh, the majority of folks are urban nowadays. Uh, rural folks are, are kind of in the minority, and yet agriculture, you know, is is a huge industry. So um, I just think all of us got to be a little more sensitive to one another's needs. Um, the methodologies in the past with wildlife services have been, uh, it's a lethal program, basically. We, uh, in wildlife services, uh, when we had a problem with a bear, a lion, a wolf, whatever, and uh, reacted to that, it was lethally. So now, even myself, I, I ask the question, um, you know, we've been using lethal forever, but it hasn't diminished coyotes. Actually, coyotes have spread over a greater portion of the country, during the time that we've uh, made every effort, you know, to kill them by all kinds of methods. Um, So will non-lethal work? And again, it's almost heresy to talk about ways to prevent damage instead of simply killing predators, which we've always done. Um, I just think we got to move forward as a society and, and look at other solutions and see if we can't do this smarter and cheaper. 
I absolutely agree with you. As we talked a little bit before, and what I've talked about on our wild world is some of the work that Wild Eyes, my organization, funds in terms of non-lethal control. This particular project is conditioned taste aversion, which happens to work, but it is, like you said, very frowned upon um, when we bring it to the higher the higher ups at, who are um, have the last word whether you're going to get an opportunity to implement a project with wolves. So you're talking about there's a great um, gap between the politics and the policies and the public. So the public's, and you've mentioned an interesting point, the public here in North America and elsewhere in the world, but since we're talking about wolves here, um, the public interest and fascination grew uh, as our American grew with wolves, about wolves, as the American culture became more removed from nature and only after wolves were gone and you know that experience of true not wildness went with them you've made a comment in your book and um, elsewhere that has been quoted that the experience of a uh, seeing or witnessing a wolf in the wild is one that we need why why is that uh, socio- so societally sociologically psychology uh, psychologically not just biologically why are wolves important well, a lot of people enjoy them. Um, I've, I've learned to enjoy wolves. Uh, I never really knew much about them until they uh, came back on the scene in Montana. But, uh, you know, again, we all grow up with certain values and attitudes. And um, it, we could spend hours talking about, you know, where do people develop these values and, and attitudes. Um, you just step back and, and enjoy the wolf. They're a beautiful, magnificent animal, um, and certainly uh, you can point out the ugly side of them too. While they kill, they kill animals, they kill prey, and, and look how they kill them, and so on and so forth. But in my own personal life, <clears throat> I just um, recognize, you know, wolves kill to eat, just like we do. Um, people tell me, well, you know, they're vicious, they're savage, they wound, they cripple, they eat animals alive. Well. Uh, humans need to look in the mirror because uh, I've been a hunter and a trapper all my life and uh, some of the things we do aren't all that neat and uh, humane either. Actually, what you just described about the wolf is, I would say, applies very, very closely to us. So maybe that's the mirror that we're looking into as the title of the show is. It, perhaps the wolf is a parable and a parallel for the soul of wilderness. And at this moment, we're going to take a little break. We're with Carter Niemeyer, author of Wolfer. You can visit his website at carterniemeyer.com. And if you'd like to call in... Uh, Call in at 866-472-5788 or send me an email at wildize at wildeyes.org. Stay with us. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild. No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. 
Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. We're with Carter Niemeyer. And I have to say, this has been a, a fascinating conversation because Carter is probably the most level-headed person I've ever had an opportunity to talk to about such a highly charged emotional issue. So, as Carter said before the break, and we said earlier, it is going to take a public shift, not only a political shift, but a public will, a society, a societal shift, a mental shift of us to want to live with predators. And Carter's been involved for so many years with the wolf issue on both sides of this fence, the need for um, conflict resolution and the need for the reintroduction and the emotional issues. Uh, tell, us, tell us some of your experiences, Carter. Um, let, us, let us know what's going on and some of your feelings and, and how you're advocating. Because uh, you went from Trapper to Whistleblower to you are an advocate and a champion of the wolf now. Tell us that story. Well, I, I guess I, I'm one of those uh, moderate middle-of-the-road guys. Um, you can call me a wolf lover. You can call me a wolf hater. Neither one of those describe me. I just think that uh, we as a society have to come to some compromise or uh, this battle over wolves especially predators, so forth, is not going to go away. Um, wolves are here to stay. And I, I really believe that because, um, you know, socially we're protecting them and legally we're protecting them. So we're going to have to learn to live with the wolf. And I think all sides have got to, uh, you know, show a little bit of give, recognizing that uh, sometimes there's going to be problems and we have to deal with them. And that's always been my issue is let's let's make sure what the problem is and then deal with it. And let's be honest about it. But um, to to go on continuing to fight about, you know, whether the wolf 
supposed to be here, it's not supposed to be here, is it the right one, the wrong one? Um, you know, that's past. We've got wolves back on the ground. Uh, we've got several thousand of them further south than they've been, uh, you know, in nearly 100 years. Uh, we're going to have to get along and live with them. We're going to have to respect each other's um, uh, opinions. And so uh, that that's where we are right now, and, and I think things are about as uh, polarized as they've ever been about wolves. And I and uh, until we start to, you know, everybody sit down at the table and talk about this, it's not going to go away. So a lot of the work you're doing now is speaking and addressing that polarization. If, uh, if our listeners look through Carter's website, there's upcoming events where uh, you speak to public, uh, public in, uh, interest groups and governmental interest, group, interest groups and NGOs. I see that you have a conference coming up with Defenders of Wildlife, who is probably one of the largest NGOs that fight for wolves. So from um, all your work in your experience, and you retired from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife in, I think, the year 2000, 2006, and since then you've become an advocate. So what are some of the um, challenges that you face in the groups that you talk to, and what are some of the uh, events coming up where you're talking about how we can learn to coexist with the wolf? Well, people who come to my presentations, I, I think uh, they kind of feel like I do. They're interested in uh, first, you know, hearing my message. But I think people are coming to these to talk about being reasonable. Uh, of course, there's a lot of folks who say I'm not going to go listen to him because, you know, he's either a wolf lover or a wolf hater. But, um, you know, the state's are managing wolves now, that, that's kind of a tough pill to swallow for a lot of people, too, because they felt like federal government would uh, take care of the wolves better. But nonetheless, folks, uh, states are in charge. I, I think the states have to have a more sensitive ear to the arguments, too, that um, we've got a huge society out here that may not quite understand what's going on yet to this day. So, again, I mean, we got to just get people talking, and, and that's one of the things I try to do in my presentations is just, uh, you know, put the information out there on the table and, and uh, let the public uh, discuss it. So you say the states are uh, now have wolf management under control, and uh, maybe you'll give us a little bit of an information or at least some links to information how the public can advocate within their state uh, their opinion and their feelings about wolves? Well, in most cases, uh, the states who have wolves have websites. So you would go to uh, the, some of them go by Fish and Game, some go by Fish and Wildlife, but uh, type those in on a search engine on uh, your computers and uh, see what information they have on wolves and uh, get a hold of folks that work for them and uh, Express your feelings. And I certainly know they're hearing from a lot of people already. There, there's just uh, so many issues going on, just like here in Idaho. We've, we've had all kinds of discussions uh, about, you know, whether wolves should live in the wilderness and be left alone or whether we're going to uh, manage wolves in the wilderness in Idaho right now. That's been a hot topic. Yeah, speaking of which, um, there's been a lot of headlines in the news about this wolf hunt, uh, 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 
a private hunter being hired by the state government, Wildlife Department, I believe, to come in and kill, wipe out two wolfbacks. And uh, the illegality was that that's being mentioned is that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife gave him a permit. And um, so there's been a lot of public brouhaha on the social networks about the killing of these two wolf packs. What's, what's your thought on that? Should well, they be or not? <clears throat> well, I'm one of those guys. Uh, first of all, it was challenged legally whether this is something that uh, – the Idaho Department of Fish and Game could do or not. And, uh, of course, Forest Service was supporting this uh, effort, too. Um, A judge initially says, yes, they can do this. Uh, So is it legal? Well, perhaps it is. It's being appealed. But it's my opinion uh, that um, we complain, you know, the wolves, we don't want wolves around livestock, and we don't want wolves eating deer and elk that hunters hunt. Uh, which is in most parts of the state of Idaho, you know, that's accessible. So now we're up uh, killing wolf packs who are back in the wilderness, uh, staying as far away from people as they can get. So it's my opinion, uh, and my attitude is wolves in the wilderness should be left alone. Uh, If wolves can't exist in a wilderness situation without humans coming in and manipulating that ecology, uh, it pretty much says sends a signal that there is really no place for wolves in Idaho. Which basically is brings us to the the headline of today: Are we going to are we willing to make room in living with wildlife? So in in Idaho, where this wolf hunt is going on, it's public lands, correct? It's 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 one of the largest. Uh, public ecosystems. I think it's the Frank Church Wilderness Area. So as you just said, if we're not willing to let them live in the wild where they belong and are not doing any harm, then our, I think it's our responsibility to uh, speak up about this. And as Carter had said, you can reach out to your state representatives, uh, contact them, and rather than spew vitriol, do an intelligent argument. The only way we're going to move forward on this wolf debate is to um, leave a little bit of the emotion out or at least keep the emotion in check and work on the common areas that we all have together the things that we do want and then find a way to work out our differences non-lethally so carter is we have a a few minutes left what would be what you would like our audience to take away today and how they can participate advocate get involved on the wolf issue and more resources that uh, they can learn and what would be the thing you would want people to take away well, just recognize, first of all, that, that uh, wolves, if they're given uh, reasonable protection, can take care of themselves very well. Uh, wolves are very prolific, and they're very resilient animals. So um, we've got a viable population going again in the northern Rockies region. If we take care of what we've invested in, At this point, uh, wolves will be here to stay, and they'll be here in healthy numbers. Recognize that in situations where problems develop, um, we've killed over 2,000 wolves plus uh, since wolf recovery began in the northern Rockies to remedy problems. 
So people got to realize sometimes we've got to deal with those problems. Uh, and in other cases, um, the state needs to manage so that uh, wolves are in the ecology where uh, people who want to hear them howl, uh, want to take pictures, uh, just want to know they're out there, those people need consideration too. Uh, in the meantime, I, I've certainly been on the receiving end of criticism throughout my career, and you, you just touched on it. Uh, if you don't like what's going on, at least be civil about it. Um, your message is going to be a lot better received from wolf managers when you're civil and reasonable and polite and courteous, but you can still be assertive. So uh, if you don't like what's going on, absolutely express yourself. Uh, but do a lot of reading. Do a lot of uh, research. There's a lot of good wolf information out there by authors like Dr. David Meach and others where you can learn some of the fundamentals about wolves and, and get knowledgeable before you comment and uh, don't necessarily react just based on emotion. Bring what, some facts to the table. One of those excellent books you were just talking about is Wolf Ecology and Behavior. I forget the author, but it is a um, an excellent uh, informational of just the facts, sort of. It leaves out the emotional argument, but it, it, it does provide excellent information in terms of why wolves are apex predators, keystone species, are important to our ecosystems. And if, as Carter said, if we want wolves and wildness, and the souls and the wolf seems to date back to our human history as a rep- representation of legend, myth, and the soul of the wild, then it is our responsibility to uh, speak up and say that that we want them and Carter what I loved most about one of the things you said is that wolves are here to stay so coming from you that is a highly optimistic comment that makes my day so uh any last any last things as before we break up today we've got a few minutes left well I just think again um get Get knowledge, get information. Um, there's so much misinformation going around. Sometimes I think there's more misinformation than, than honest information. Um, go to good sources for your information. Don't get it off uh, the Internet, I guess, because there's uh, so many agendas, so many people trying to uh, hoodwink us that I think you need to start out basically by looking at uh, some of the more uh, established uh, wolf experts who have written about the animal and then, uh, you know, learn from that, learn from those fundamentals, but don't, don't believe everything you read in the press. And then speaking of established, there is our Endangered Species Act and the um, current Senate bill, I think it's 1731, uh, you go and you oppose this vote asking Congress to uh, hand the management of the Endangered Species Act over to the states. The, the ESA is here to protect our wildlife, do our bit as the public and uh, this shift in societal will to speak out and tell our representatives what we want. We do want wolves and find a way to uh, 
coexist between those who are fearful of wolves in terms of economics and livestock management to those who are completely tied up in perhaps an unrealistic emotional aspect. There is a a crossroads where reality and desire in the future will come together and it will take society and culture and our political will to move this ahead. So I would like to thank so much, Carter, for your being with us today. Once again, I truly suggest reading Wolfer, uh, the, the book Carter wrote. It will give you an astonishing insight uh, to what's going on in the history and, and where we're headed. So thank you, Carter Niemeyer. Um, I really appreciate your being here today. Well, I appreciate getting to comment. And um, I wish you the best of luck. You're moving on to a new position um, dealing with wolves uh, into Washington University. So I look forward to staying up on that and I wish you well. And for all our listeners today, thank you for joining Our Wild World. And remember, when you step out there, it is our wild world. So do our bit to keep it that way. Thank you. This is Ellie Weiss. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 